Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Don Smith. Don grew up in an evangelical cult called the Assembly. Her childhood was spent living in a commune where women and girls were stripped of most of their rights and Assembly members were forced to follow such rules as no music, dancing, nail polish, or clapping. In today's conversation, Dawn paints a vivid picture of what it means to be part of a cult, and more specifically, a cult that is run by a narcissistic, charismatic, abusive, and manipulative leader who happens to be her grandfather. She talks about the day she walked away from her mom, dad, and the only life she had ever known, and the reason why. Dawn built a future that is unimaginable from her past. And not only did she find the courage to leave, but she made the commitment to dig deep and define core values and belief systems free of her childhood and based on her own terms. Dawn rarely speaks about her past, so I am especially grateful that she trusted us with her story and message. Here's today's interview with the courageous Don Smith. Don, thank you for being here on this Friday night on All the Wiser. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I always love for our guests to introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? I am a, a writer, producer, mother, and I overwater plants. I think that <laughs> that's me in a nutshell. That sums it up. Anna Artists, I've seen your sketches. Yes, that's true. So much of this conversation is about your childhood and upbringing. So I'd love to start there if you can set the stage of the backdrop of your childhood. So the assembly started in the late 60s, early 70s, and the assembly was a non-denominational evangelical fundamentalist group that came from the Jesus movement. For anyone who's not familiar, the Jesus movement took place primarily in California, and it was a bunch of kind of ex-hippies who had grown up a little bit and decided to channel their anti-establishment feelings into religion. The assembly came out of this movement, and it was based in Fullerton, California. I was born in 1978, so... It was in full swing by the time I 
came on the scene. And my father, Tim Giftakis, was one of the founders of the assembly. My grandfather, George Giftakis, was the leader, and he was the guy in charge, basically. I know you said there's great sensitivity, and especially with your parents, around the word cult and the notion of cult. Right. And in some of your public talks, Mm it's referred to as an evangelical cult. Yes. So explain that to our listeners. Yeah. This is something that really is interesting to me just as a writer. We were very hung up on words and definitions and what they meant. And we had this weird system of rules that just kind of grew more and more controlling and manipulative as the assembly continued on. So when it first started in the late 60s, it was a lot more about like freedom and acceptance. But what happened as it continued on and George got more powerful and more people came in and more money started coming in, it started becoming very controlling. Women started being told what they could and could not wear what they could and could not do for work, who could get married to whom. You know, you couldn't just, you know, fall in love with someone and get married. It had to go through George. There were strange rules that started kind of rolling out as the assembly got more and more powerful. And with that came a lot of trappings of a definition of a cult. For example, we could not really have any close relationships with anybody outside of the assembly. So, I have looked up the definition of cult before just because it was something that I was (laughs) so hung up on after I left the assembly because I really needed to be able to call it what it was. And I'm going to look, I have the definition here in my notes, actually. It's basically a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. And the other definition is a misplaced or excessive admiration of a particular person or thing. And the assembly had both of those. We had very legalistic practices that were controlling and abusive. And George could do whatever he wanted. There was no one that really put a check to his power at all. Your grandfather, George, who you've mentioned now a few times, Mm -hmm. what type of person was George? That's a really good question. George was an interesting character. He was this great public speaker. He was very charismatic. He was incredibly narcissistic and he was a pathological liar. But he was also very friendly and ready to laugh. He was very good at preaching and kind of putting together interesting, you know, stories and biblical thoughts. And then Elizabeth Olive, who is my grandmother, Betty, we called her, his wife, she was kind of his opposite, quieter, a little more legalistic than him, I think, not very happy, but they were very good at manipulating people. I think they made a good team manipulating people. In fact, George, what I found out after leaving the assembly was that he would exploit women for sex in the assembly. And then after that, they would go and speak to Betty, who was down the hall in her office. And Betty would basically tell them if they said anything about George's affairs, then it would be their fault that the assembly fell apart. (laughs) So, you know, not the most wonderful people in the world, but, you know, I didn't know that when I was growing up. You know, they were just my grandparents. So 
And what was the housing situation? Where were you guys living? Was it all in sort of a communal area? If you can paint the picture of that. So basically we lived in communes. The interesting thing about the assembly was that we didn't live out in the middle of nowhere. We lived in towns and cities all across the U.S. And these men who were married would have what we called training homes. And the training homes were the communes that we lived in. We separated them by gender. So we had sisters' homes for the women and brothers' homes for the men. And basically, you have to turn in your schedule to the elder's wife or the elder in charge of the training home that you lived in. And they would basically like pick it apart, make sure that, you know, every minute was spent for Jesus. You know, we had to be at the building by like seven in the morning to set up chairs, get everything ready, clean the bathrooms. And then it started around eight and it lasted until about 530. And then we had to take the chairs down, clean everything up. So it was intense, you know, like (laughs) we were constantly doing all this work and all these meetings for the assembly. Were you in school? Yeah. Yeah. So my mom was the only woman I knew who had a master's degree and she went and got that degree so that she could start a cult school for all of us kids. We called it Cornerstone Academy and she was a great teacher. My mom, if there's one reason that I left the assembly, it is because my parents, they did care about me. You know, that's the interesting thing about cults is that they're never all bad. People stay in cults because there's just enough good in them to keep people in them. And I had a mother who really valued education, which is uncommon, I think, in cult life. And so she did start a school for us that was called Cornerstone and all the cult kids would go there. But she did a really great job with education. Eventually, the elders were like, oh my gosh, a woman is in charge. And they took her you know, away from being principal and demoted her and put an elder in charge who had no experience and was not a very good teacher. The interesting thing about the assembly is that we targeted college kids. College kids was kind of where we got most of our people that we would rope into the assembly. So that meant that college cult kids had to get into universities. So we did go to college, but we did not go to college for the betterment of ourselves or to have a great career. We went to college to get people to come into the assembly. And I read that that was really a specific and intentional demographic that was targeted for the assembly. Why that demographic? We targeted college kids because they are on their own for the first time. They're vulnerable. They're lonely. They're looking for community. They're out on their own. And they're open to pretty much anything. And we were taught from a very young age how to go out onto the street and evangelize and approach people casually in a very friendly manner and get people to talk to us about their spiritual beliefs. And so we would rope people into these friendly conversations, and then we would have these fun, like volleyball get togethers at the beach or basketball at the park or a barbecue. And we would invite people to that and then kind of gently and carefully and casually talk to them about who we are and what we're about and why don't you come to a meeting sometime. And so we would build friendships with people while also 
getting them to slowly give us more and more of their time. And that's how we got people to come into the assembly. I know there were a lot of things that were forbidden. Yeah. (laughs) Dating, TV, clapping, dancing, nail polish, psychiatrist. What are some (laughs) of the things that were forbidden? Yeah. So there were a lot of fun things. For sure, dating, television, science, nail polish, piercings, ambitious females were (laughs) definitely taught. We thought they were demonic, you know, was the nice general term for women who wanted to have a career. Birth control, not acceptable. Psychiatry, dancing, any kind of display of being opinionated, especially if you're a woman, was absolutely not acceptable. Women could be told to go change their clothes if our shorts were too short or our sleeves were not long enough. You know, makeup, it was allowed to a degree, but anyone could come and tell us to take our makeup off if they felt like it was going to stumble the men, as we said. (laughs) So yeah, there was a lot of things that were just arbitrarily decided to be a problem. Even like going to the gym was a problem, reading certain books. Harry Potter was absolutely not allowed. Like when Harry Potter came out, we had these whole like meeting sessions on how it was evil and demonic. And so we couldn't read Harry Potter. Every single thing about life that even was just normal would be taken to the extreme, whether it was cleaning the house, you know, Betty would go and put on a white glove and run her hand over every surface to see if there was any dust. And if there was, then a consequence would be given to whoever was supposed to clean that thing. So, and that kind of trickled down to eating, exercise, how we spent our time. Basically, George and Betty could decide every minute of our day. And marriages arranged. George was in charge of who married who, correct? So... This is the interesting thing. Someone would be attracted to somebody else. And if George did not approve of that marriage, it wouldn't happen. And we didn't have many people of color in the assembly, especially African-American people. We had very few. But I do know that there was a man who was Black and he was interested in a white woman. And I was in the car with George when he said, white people should never marry Black people. So he definitely had power to make sure certain people didn't get married based on racism or his own fancies or whatever. How large was the assembly at its peak? That's a good question. And I am not very good with numbers, but I would say it was probably a couple thousand people by the end, maybe like 3,500 people or so. You've spoken about abuse, and if you're comfortable sharing, what kind of abuse and at the hands of whom? There was quite a bit of abuse. The reason that I left the assembly was because I found out that abuse that I had witnessed when I was a little child had gone unchecked and had never changed. My uncle David, so George's son, who was older than my dad, he abused my aunt and my cousins. And it was under the guise of spanking, but it was really beating. And I went to visit them when I was a young girl for like a Thanksgiving week or something and witnessed him spanking, quote unquote, my cousin so hard and so repetitively that she ended up losing 
60% of her hearing in, in one ear. <sighs> and what happened was David just got moved around to different assemblies instead of the abuse actually being addressed and providing a safe space for my cousins and my aunt. You know, women could absolutely never leave their husbands for any reason. Divorce was not biblical, so we did not believe that it should ever happen. And so they had no safe space to go. They stayed with David. He continued his abuse. I heard horrible stories about what he did to them later. But what happened was my aunt was basically fled for her life. And my cousin, Rachel, who is just this fabulously strong, amazing woman that I am so grateful to for everything she's done. She endured horrible abuse by David. And she shared this whole story about her experience in the assembly and how George knew all about it and constantly covered it up. And that is the reason I left the assembly because these brave people shared their stories and shared their truth. And it, it met me right where I needed to be. And so I started calling all these people who had left the assembly to ask them for the first time in my life to tell me their story. And I put together a list of their stories with my husband and we turned it into the leaders in Fullerton and immediately left the assembly. I want to go back a little bit to childhood. Yes. I think most kids just know what they know. Mm -hmm. Their reality is, <laughs> you know, their reality. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. They're like a blank slate. They just accept whatever they're being raised in. Do you remember a time in your life where you realized, wait, this is dramatically different than how most kids <laughs> live? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. You know, there's these wonderful people who move through the world and check on other people to see if they're okay. <laughs> and I experienced those people throughout my childhood. And it was just for a moment because I always told them I was okay. But it was like a little flashlight shining its little rays in my dark corner and saying, hey, this isn't okay. Are you doing okay? Are you safe? So the first time I remember this woman who saw me standing at the little track table while my dad was yelling the gospel at people on the street, and she made eye contact with me and walked up to me as he's yelling the gospel. And she got down on one knee and she said, one day you will grow up and you will realize you can leave all of this. And then she left. And so that was the first, that is one of my first memories that I ever had. And the first time someone came up and checked on me. I knew you also had a moment, a very different moment, mm -hmm. living in a commune mm -hmm. and a cult where music was not allowed, <laughs> where you came across your dad's Bob Dylan albums. Yes. Can you oh my that gosh. Story? Yes. So Saturdays were the day where all of the leadership had their own meetings and whoever was not in leadership stayed at the training home and cleaned the house. It was one of those very strange days where all of the women who lived in our home were gone. So they were at the workers meeting and me and my sister were at home alone and we had been given our list of chores to do. So 
My sister was doing her chores and I was doing mine. One of my jobs was to like deep clean my parents' room. So they wanted me to take all of the stuff out of the bookcases, dust them down and put everything back. I come across something hidden way back in the recesses of this bookcase and I pull it out and it's all wrapped up and I take it out of its wrapping and it's Bob Dylan's complete record collection, like all of his work. Because my dad, before he found Jesus, was a huge Bob Dylan fan. And he loved music, I think, just in general, but Bob Dylan was his favorite. And he'd given up everything else because he felt like it was evil and worldly, but he could not bring himself to give up his Bob Dylan records. He also could never play them in our training home. Absolutely not acceptable. So he had wrapped them up and shoved them in the dark recesses of his closet. And (laughs) so I put that first record on and was like, I'll just listen to this quietly while I'm cleaning. That'll be nice, you know, a little music. And I slowly stopped cleaning and just kind of melted in front of the record player and started looking and reading through all of the lyrics. And there were these beautiful, like glossy photographs of Dylan in concert. And I just, I listened until my parents came home. Like I got completely off track. I totally lost track of time. It was like I had my own little mini revolution And I didn't even know what was happening. I could not understand what was happening to me. I just listened and everything was like splayed out across the entire room. And I was in heaven when (laughs) my parents walked into the room and my, I had it turned up very loud by this point. And my mom came in and was just like, what is going on? And my dad looked so guilty. (laughs) Because it was kind of his fault that I had found his secret stash of Dylan records. So I don't think I actually got in trouble that night, but that never happened again. So that was like my mini revolution and it was amazing. So you're having these glimpses, this woman, you lock eyes, she gets down on her knees, finding your dad's Bob Dylan records. Mm -hmm. You spoke to going to college, but you're really there to recruit for the assembly. Mm -hmm. But I know that was a little bit of a a refuge too. Mm -hmm. At what point do you meet your husband? So I met my husband, he grew up in Illinois and he came out for a mission trip, which my dad was a missionary and I was a teenager and we were friends. Like we just hit it off. And he was just this really nice guy who I thought was super cute. And there were not many cute men in the assembly. <laughs> Gotta say the, uh, the pickings were slim. So it was very exciting to see a cute guy who was also in the assembly. So he was in the assembly, but just in a different part of the country. Yes. Yeah the assembly he grew up in, it actually was its own thing even before George came along. So it was a little bit different and they had a little, maybe not as odd and controlling. So you're a teenager Mm -hmm. traveling with your dad, doing mission work and you meet, who is now your husband, but at the time, not a chance in hell that he would have been your boyfriend. (laughs) Absolutely. Exactly. So so you meet a hot guy in the assembly who eventually have a future with. Right. You decide to leave and you decide Mm -hmm. to leave with your sister. Mm -hmm. Tell me why. 
My sister and I have always been close and we are just a year and a half apart in age. And the assembly was very hard on Elizabeth and she suffered a lot because the assembly just, it was very hard on women and she could have really benefited from a therapist. And I think we all could have, obviously, but it's especially hard for people who struggle with any kind of mental illness. And it was very hard on her. And so she and I would always help each other out. Because she had no psychiatry or any sort of mental health option was not... Absolutely not. Yeah, not not at all an option. Everything was always pray about it. If you're having a, a problem, it's because you're you're not right with God. You need to go repent of your sin and you need to make it right. So you watched your sister in pain and couldn't get her help. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. And it's very hard to watch people that you love struggle with things. And we both were brainwashed. So it wasn't like I was saying, go to a therapist. You know, I was simply trying to help her. And I think what we ended up doing for each other was not really talking the talk and preaching at each other, but just kind of actually saying, are you okay? What is going on? I'm here to be with you. Even if it means, you know, you're going to be locked in a bathroom because you're so miserable, I'm here on the other side of the door. And when we found out about David's abuse of my aunt and cousins, and we just talked about it constantly. So it was her and her husband and me and my husband. And the four of us talked about everything constantly. And the four of us left together. So by now you're both married mm -hmm. and you have, through conversations and getting more and more information, understand how bad the abuse from your uncle to his wife and your cousins was. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a tipping point. That for us was it. And then this whole thing of wife training happened where like men would make all these rules for their wives and they had to smile at their husbands every time their husbands looked at them. And, you know, one woman had a baby and immediately had to get up and serve 60 people dinner because her husband wanted her to. So the assembly was this place where men who should never have power had all this power. And even though other men didn't agree with that, like my dad, it still just, you know, raged through the assembly like wildfire. And men's, like there were little camps of like, yes, we believe in wife training and oh, we don't. And so it was this really unhealthy, unsafe space for women. And so I grew up with that. And so it was like, I slowly realized this is not right. This should change. But until I found out that the abuse of my aunt and cousins had been hidden, I thought it could change within the group. Like I could stay in the group and our new generation that was up and coming, we could change things. And cults can never change from the inside. <laughs> it's just, it's based on this lack of accountability and control. It's, it's a flawed system. And I realized that when I realized that George had been allowing this abuse from the beginning. So my, my sister and I left the assembly together. And you confronted your grandparents, which I believe you've not seen them since that day. What was that Correct. conversation? 
Honestly, I was afraid for my safety. We had talked to a number of people that had left the assembly. We had gotten their stories. We had written them down. We gave them to the elders that were in Fullerton and told them we were leaving. And then we walked around the corner because my parents' house was right next to George and Betty's house. We walked to their house and George was just enraged. And I think that if my husband hadn't been there, I would have been beaten. Like it was so just terrifying. He was clutching the chair so hard that his knuckles were turning white. And we had outlined these bullet points of why we were leaving. And we told him before we start, we want you to know that we don't want to leave the assembly because at this point in our lives, we didn't. We were still very brainwashed. You know, all of our lives were totally bound up in the assembly. We we weren't even thinking of like, I could have a career. I could be free. Like we just were thinking this is not a thing we can be a part of unless George admits to all his wrongdoing and spends the rest of his life trying to make it right and apologizes for what he did. And so here we are presenting him with this option. Like we think he is going to agree to it. And he basically started yelling at us and he was reading us Bible verses about how judgmental we were and how great our punishment from God was going to be. It was like something from Ezekiel, like some fire and brimstone passage about how evil these children of David were or something, you know. And we said, okay, so then this is goodbye and we will never see you again unless you want to make these things right and you will never see our kids again. Because we also, my sister had two kids, I think, by this time. And I had just had my first. How old were you at the time? I left when I was 23. So with that leaving, is it fear, liberation, all of the above? Yes, totally. I mean, leaving a cult is incredibly hard. And, you know, I lost my appetite. I ended up developing PTSD because people from the assembly would like pop up at our apartment just out of the blue. There was this woman from the assembly in LA who would, we lived in student housing and there was this tiny little student pool outside our apartment. And she would just sit her butt in that pool and just look up at our apartment window and wait for me to walk by. And it just was awful. And also I was just frequently like worried that I was going to hell, that I was going to be, you know, deceived by Satan. And so it was kind of this crazy dichotomy of like fear and sorrow for losing our family and losing our support structure and losing our friends and being shunned. And then at the same time, this, all this time with like my baby daughter and my new husband. And all of a sudden we could do something other than praying all night, Friday night. So slowly but surely we started giving more and more of our tiny little student paycheck to Blockbuster and, you know, watching movies we'd never seen and TV shows we'd never seen. And like, I tried on bikinis and then I took the bikinis off and I decided bikinis are not for me, (laughs) but I made that decision. You know, I decided to try to get a wax, you know, a Brazilian wax. And I was like, wow, those 
hurt like hell, <laughs> but, but I made that decision. So it was you like, clapped. I was, yeah, I could clap without someone being like, that is satanic and you are exhibiting too much joy. You know, I listened to music and started discovering what music I liked. I remember the first time I went to a comedy show, my first live concert was U2 and it was amazing. I couldn't even, I, and it was, it was exactly like being in my, my dad's house, living, listening to Bob Dylan. It was like, I couldn't even process it all because it was just all of these things coming at me, all this amazing music. And I was just transformed. We were in the very back row and it was the best thing ever. And, and we went to comedy shows and I realized I absolutely adore comedy. So it was life-changing. And what I like to say is as hard as leaving a cult was, the hardest day of freedom is better than the best day in a cult is really what it comes down to. And were people asking you to come back, whether it's your family or other members of the assembly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Other people from that assembly in, in Los Angeles started coming by our apartment or just hanging out there and not even talking to us, but just like coming to swim in that little pool, for example, that was only for students. Like it was a gated thing. They weren't even, they didn't even have a key to come in, but they would wait until someone left and then they would like sneak in. So I definitely, it was so creepy and I got PTSD and I just would start shaking. And I would say for like a solid five or six years, I really couldn't even talk about the assembly after a while without shaking uncontrollably. I really shut down and I was like, I don't want to talk about it with any new friends or with anyone at my job. I was afraid that if someone found out that I had been raised in a cult, I might lose my job. So I never told people I worked with. And I really stopped talking about it until Trump became president. And then I felt like I had to talk about it because it felt so very cult-like. It felt so much like the assembly with people justifying violence and hate speech and just falling in line behind someone who's a pathological liar, just like my grandfather. And so in 2016, it was uh, March of 2016 was the first time I got up on stage and told a story about growing up in the assembly. Your beautiful story of the woman that came up to you on the street as a child, I know came full circle in your life. Mm -hmm. Can you share that full circle moment with me? Absolutely. So it was a few years after I had left the assembly and I was living in Los Angeles. And I'd had a really hard day. And at this point, the romance of nail polish and short hair had worn off a little bit. And I was walking down the street when I saw her. She was a young girl in a very conservative dress. And she was standing by a man who was yelling the gospel at people as they walked by. And I stopped and I made eye contact with her and I walked up to her and I got down on one knee and I said, one day you will grow up and you will realize you can leave all of this. And then I left. God, it gives me chills. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's, it's rare that I can go through that story without crying <laughs> just because it does really, it means something to me because 
obviously someone did that for me. Well, I hope that her story is similar to yours. I hope so. What did you learn about the power of manipulation and the power of education throughout this journey? Mm, That's a great question. I went to college believing that I was going to get people to come into the assembly. And so very quickly, I fell in love with learning. I was so excited about my art history class. And I mean, I'm taking, you know, like basic level things. This is my first quarter of my college experience. And the elder whose training home I lived in, he sat me down at the end of my first quarter and he said, I'm very concerned that you are so preoccupied with your classes. It's taking away from the work of the Lord. So he decided to control the amount of time I could study. And he cut my my study time in half. And then he went and reported this to my grandmother. And then I had to meet with my grandmother. And she continued to like hound me about, you know, how much I needed to stop studying. And then I got a letter from the school saying, because I was doing so well academically, they were suggesting that I go to these certain meetings for scholarships and for like, you know, study abroad. And the letter was opened when I got home. I would not have told anyone that I had gotten that letter, but they found out on their own. And so then that was another huge talk where I sat in his office and I remember just weeping. And he basically was like, you are a woman. You are here to get married and have babies. This education is not something for you. Until you get married, you see Irvine to bring people into the assembly. And this letter is not acceptable. So it really was this moment of conflict, really, it came to a head when I really wanted to get a college education. And it was that one time in my life where I just remember deep down thinking to myself, I am not going to change this. I am going to get an education and they're not going to stop me. Where is your relationship with your parents today? My relationship with my parents is complicated. They did not want to break off our relationship when we left the assembly. And although they stayed in the assembly, I also did not want to break off my relationship with them because they were my parents, you know? The problem is that you can't really have a relationship with anyone in a cult. And so I had spent hours and hours and hours talking to my parents about all the problems, and my parents didn't agree that they were problems. And they didn't agree that they were things that would never change. And so what happened was that we could only have a relationship in a very superficial way. Also, I did not want them talking to my children about their belief system. I definitely did not want them telling them, you know, you can't wear this, you can't do this as a woman. This church does not believe the right thing about God. So those were all things that we constantly had to check and stop them from. And it was, I had to learn how to put up boundaries because I never learned that because you don't have boundaries in a cult. Everyone tells you how to be and controls you. And so I had to learn how to say, this is my family. These are my children. You are not allowed to speak about this. 
or say these kind of things. We moved to Chicago for my husband's residency program because he decided after we left the assembly that he wanted to become a doctor. So distance really helped. And we were able to talk on the phone occasionally and maintain a semblance of familiarity while also I learned how to enforce boundaries that I had put up, you know. And so I I am very thankful that I was able to move because I think that helped a lot for me to heal and to figure out who I was without them interfering. Does the assembly still exist today? Are they still intact? There are a few assembly groups still today. My parents left the assembly because it just devolved and became this crazier and crazier group. And so what eventually happened was my my parents couldn't even be involved, so they left. They are at another non-denominational group. I don't think that my parents will ever be able to shed that kind of thinking. It is what they believe. Have you forgiven your grandparents? That's a good question. And I think the answer is yes, I have, but I still absolutely hold them responsible and accountable for what they've done. I had a long time to move from sorrow to anger to acceptance, you know, all of the (laughs) stages of grief. So it took me a while, but I, I definitely... Now, when I think of my grandparents, I feel sorrow for them because they have lost so much because of a life of hatred and manipulation. And my grandfather, actually, I was working at AKPD Message and Media, which is um, was formerly David Axelrod's political consulting firm. I got a job there in 2014 while Obama was still in the White House, and I was thrilled because I know I'm not responsible for all of the hate and all the messages that my grandparents have spread through the U.S., but I also suddenly had access to millions of televisions where I was making ads about things I believed in, like get out the vote and equal rights and and marriage equality and all these things that my family had preached against. And I felt like I was shining my own light, you know, and then my sister called me and said that my grandfather was about to pass away. And I immediately hung up and was going through figuring out how he was going to get out to California and go to the funeral. And I stopped and just kind of took stock of my life. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of peace that I actually, I'm free of his power of whatever manipulation George had over my life, I'm free of that. And I just was happy to not be there because this was my family now and I had laid all of that to rest. And it was a really wonderful feeling. And and it ended up that all of my cousins and my sister and her husband, we all independently... (laughs) came to that same decision. Interesting. Does religion play any role in your life today? I would say that I went through 
many years going to different churches and temples and sampling different beliefs. And when it came down to it, I still pray and I love to go on runs. And that's kind of like my way of meditating. It kind of, I kind of like unplug and think through what I'm grateful for and, and count blessings and things like that. So I would say I, I definitely believe we have a spiritual side to us and I'm happiest when I embrace that, but I no longer, you know, ascribe to a certain belief system. So I will definitely like call out to a higher power, be thankful for what I have. But I also think that maybe there's not a God. I I don't know anymore. And I think I really love being in a space where I am comfortable saying, I I have no idea. I know that you've been protective in telling your story. And when you and I spoke on the phone, you said you get a lot of media requests Mm -hmm. and that you're reluctant. And a lot of them you've passed on. Mm -hmm. Yes. Why? I'm reluctant to give interviews because there's part of me that I've worked in production enough to know that interviews can be edited (laughs) and a story that was told can turn into something different. And so I think the thing that's important to me is that I feel like the person who's interviewing me is a person I can trust. And there are not a lot of people I feel I can trust, I think, with my story. And so I typically say no. Well, I feel really honored that you trusted me. And um, uh, I hope you did feel comfortable. And I, and I hope I do well by your story. You have been fabulous. I mean, I listened to samplings of your work and I was like, okay, this is a safe space. (laughs) What is your hope when you do share your story? What do you want people to take away? Hmm. I want to speak specifically to white evangelicals. And I think we need to do a lot of changing. And because I come from that background, I hope they will listen to me or at least give me some of their time because the white evangelical movement in America has politically been problematic in the last few years. And I would love to inspire someone to stop and think about what they believe and why they believe it because I, someone did that for me. And the way they did that was by telling their story. I was set free from the assembly because other people were brave enough to tell their stories about how that life affected them. And so I hope that I can just encourage people, even one person, to question their belief system and take a critical look at it and try to put aside what they've been raised to believe and look at the other side of things and question if what they believe is really true and could be possibly misinformed. Thank you, Dawn. It is an honor to play a part in sharing your story. And you are such a a gifted storyteller. No surprise that you're a writer. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we end with something a little fun called rapid fire. So I'm just going to fire something off and you come back to me with whatever comes to your mind. Okay. All right. You ready? (laughs) I'm ready. Favorite city? 
New York City. Show you currently love. Oh my gosh, such a hard question. Uh, Succession. So good. Oh my gosh. Best way to spend a Friday night. Watching a movie. (laughs) Favorite curse word. Fuck. (laughs) Our kids won't listen. (laughs) I know. Sorry, children. (laughs) Thing you wish you knew when you were 20. That I am enough. Greatest hope for your children. That they will never join a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I know I think about that way more than the average parent. (laughs) You're like, hell no. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That is not an option. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, where can we find you online? I feel like you're up to so many interesting things in the world between art and comedy and your political work. So where can people learn more about you or follow you on social media? So my website is pushbackfilms.com and my social media handle is pushbackfilms. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and I'm on Facebook. Great. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. All right. And our kids, hey. no no background, no children. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> no children. Can you believe they did it? I just, I'm shocked. <laughs> Six collective children were quiet, people. <laughs> this is a miracle. There must be a God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you are a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Today's interview with Don supports Manifest Works. They provide real-world, hands-on experience and mentors for kids who've been impacted by foster care, homelessness, and incarceration. The goal is building a foundation of long-term success, exposing them to the real world, people, moments, and potential opportunities that help pave the way to a healthy, happy, and successful future that all children deserve. Their website is gorgeous. You can check it out at manifestworks.org. Again, it's so well done with beautiful pictures and videos about their work. And of course, a button to donate. So check out manifestworks.org for some inspiration. Thank you again to Dawn Smith for sharing her story and for introducing us all to Manifest Works. On a final note, We just relaunched our newsletter, which we will send out every time there is a new All The Wiser episode. I hope you will consider subscribing. You can go to our website at allthewiserpodcast.com and click subscribe and subscribe to both the podcast and our newsletter. As always, thank you for making the time to listen to our podcast. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.